Hey everyone, I'm Jordan Mello and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places. Saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Good morning, Sanctus Church. We've been journeying through the book of Acts, and I hope you've been challenged and inspired throughout this series. Today, we want to turn our attention to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. And in this passage, there are four words or themes I'd like us to focus on, and they are persecution, progression, poison, and proclamation. See, the book of Acts is the story of the formation and the growth of the church and how all that took place, which was outlined by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he called the disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So let's begin of the four words with the word persecution. We read in the previous chapters, Pastor John shared last week about the death of Stephen. And it was by means of the persecution that arose due to the death of Stephen and his martyrdom that the early Christians were pressed out of Jerusalem and moved into areas in Judea and Samaria and began to preach the word of God. I love how one writer said this. He said, the Sanhedrin silenced a voice that was upsetting a city, but without realizing it, they awakened a voice that would upset an empire. And that's the way God works. Throughout the book of Acts, we see how God uses opposition to advance His cause. Now let's begin in Acts 8, verses 1 to 5. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Notice how this paragraph begins with the word persecution and ends with proclamation. The proclamation was due to the persecution. You see, God does two things during the time of persecution here. First, the church is forced out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to fulfill the program, the divine program fulfilled and outlined by Jesus in Acts 1. Second, he made the early church not dependent upon the apostles, but actually upon the gifts of the Spirit distributed to everyone. Because you notice the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Now, Luke is careful to highlight that those who were scattered were ordinary Christians, just like you and me, but they had the gifts of the Spirit. A beautiful distinctive here at Sanctus is that we are a gift-based church, and we encourage you and everyone to prayerfully identify and confirm within community the God-given gifts that He has given to us and operate in them. 
You know, we just finished the, the Serve Conference, and for those who were there, I hope you were blessed and encouraged and empowered and equipped during that time. But where we explored and we encouraged ourselves to function in our God-given gifts. You see, God allowed the pressure to place them in new environments and circumstances where they began to grow in their gifts of evangelism and witnessing and helps and wisdom and knowledge and teaching and prophecy and all other gifts of the Spirit that were made available to them. Sometimes I wonder, what will it take uh, the church to believe and operate in their fullness in the spiritual gifts and not allow apathy and complacency and ignorance to slow the work of God? You know, he may allow persecution or problems or pressures uh, that can come in our ways. And so that we also don't become very dependent on our pastors and leaders in the church in order that God would empower us to fully utilize our God-given gifts. And so this morning, are, are you going through some pressure or problem in your life? The pressures, the problems, the trials that may come may not be actually the result of a sin in our lives. Sometimes they are. But it may be God's way of moving us into some new experience, some new job, a new city, a new group of people to give us a new opportunity to use our God-given gifts for His glory and for His purpose and for more people to know Jesus and to experience that transformation. So don't be surprised when we face trials. As Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 13, says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering. The second word we'd like to focus is progression. Now we've come to the point in our series in Acts where the gospel begins to go out of Judea into Samaria. Until now, it's been centered in Jerusalem. But now God thrust them out into new ground, into new territory. From a Jewish perspective, the Samaritans were considered half-breed, neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. They were a despised group of people. They were descended from the northern tribes of Israel, the old kingdom of Israel that had fallen captive to Assyria in 722 BC. Those who were not taken captive by Assyria to Assyria remained in the land and intermarried with the native Canaanite population. These Samaritan descendants considered themselves still to be the people of God. They had their own form of the Pentateuch or their holy scriptures. They circumcised their sons. They even built a temple on Mount Gerizim to compete with the temple in Jerusalem. So this shift in, in territory, this progression or expansion of the gospel message was a big deal. It marked the beginning of something new, something beyond comprehension for the average Jew. So now Philip reaches Samaria and in verses 6 to 8 says, And the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs which he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were oppressed and crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was so much joy in the city. The ministry of Philip was one marked by the Holy Spirit. And in this passage, we identify three distinctions, three markers of genuine ministry of the Spirit. The first is truth. Notice that it says, the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip. When the crowds heard Philip, they knew it was truth because not only did they listen, but it says they gave heed or they accepted what was said. So the proclamation of the gospel always conveys truth and authority. The second is the accompaniment of power. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and, and, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. You see, they witnessed power 
that, peop- that set people free. Power that delivered and healed broken uh, and bondages and healed physical illnesses. God immediately manifested the power on a physical and a visible level so that they would trust God to, that he would set them free internally in their spirit. The third marker is joy. It says there was so much joy in that city. When people are set free, it always fills them with joy. Now, here's an important truth to to consider. The gospel says it fills us with joy. And even though immediately our outward circumstances may not change, yet scripture says there's joy. Joy is not connected to the change in our circumstances because one of the fruit of the spirit is joy. It's actually an attitude in God's people that we are to adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of our hope is in God's love and promises. So when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death, then joy becomes an anchor in our life, even in the darkest circumstance. Now continuing in Acts 8, verse 9 to 13, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the nation of Samaria and said to himself, and saying that he was uh, himself somebody great. And they all gave heed to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is that power of God, which is called great. And they gave heed to them because for a long time, he amazed them with his magic. And when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, in this section, we're going to see a contrast between authentic Christianity and those of the false and counterfeit faith. Simon the magician appears in this account to be another manifestation of the devil's attack against the church from within. Pastor John's been sharing about the contrast between external attack and internal. And here we see a third occasion in the book of Acts where we're finding the sprouting of bad seed. The first was the story of Ananias and Sapphira that manifested the hypocrisy and lies. The second was the dissension that sprouted among the disciples when they quarreled about the distribution of goods to the widows. Now, this third manifestation of religious falseness and deception and the desire of power is seen in this chapter. When scripture uses the term here, magic, it's not talking about the sleight of hand tricks that are done with cards or before an audience. Rather, it applies to the occult as performed by someone who's established a relationship with the demonic powers. Do you remember the story during the time of the Exodus when Moses appeared before Pharaoh and God told Moses to put his staff down on the ground and it became a serpent and then he picked it up and it became a staff again. And then Pharaoh's summoned his magicians and the magicians came with their own staffs and threw it on the ground and became snakes. And so it seemed that they had similar power to that of Moses. Then God told Moses to throw down his staff again and it became a serpent and his serpent ate all the other serpents, showing that God's power is always greater than the enemy. Now, it's, it's interesting to know that many of the demonic people who were released by the preaching of Philip had probably been originally bound by Simon, the magician, by his own magic, his uh, demonic occultic practices. And here, Philip is here releasing them from the bondages that they, they may have occurred during Simon's life. In verse 13, it says, even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now Simon took upon himself the identification with Jesus Christ and joined the others who said they were following Jesus. But we'll see shortly if Simon's commitment is genuine or not. 
In verse 14 downwards, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, to, uh, sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The account opens with the genuine manifestation of authentic Christianity, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting to note that it says that the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon any of them in Samaria. Well, then what happened? What happened to them? They'd believe. They'd been baptized. And what happened? Both outwardly and inwardly, they were demonstrating the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They had the Holy Spirit. They were regenerated. They were baptized in water as a testimony to the very regeneration that had occurred in their hearts and which outwardly manifested with joy as we read. So it would be a mistake if we would say that the Holy Spirit was not yet in Samaria because he was. So why did Peter and John come and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Now just imagine if the Holy Spirit had appeared to the Samaritan believers when they first believed on, as on the day of Pentecost. There could have easily developed a separate, unique church of the Samaritans, one that was apart from the Jews. As we all know, there was already existing a wall of separation dividing the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans and the Samaritans had no dealing with the Jews. So had the Spirit come upon this church when Philip first went down there, it could have easily produced two separate churches. But by tying it all together, when the apostles came down from Jerusalem, the Spirit was saying, there is one body, not two, and that there's no distinction in the church. There's only one church, and that's all. And the Samaritans belong to it equally as much as the Jews. Now Luke presents the Samaritan outreach as the first important advancement of the Christian mission. This Samaritan Pentecost implies that a new nucleus was expanding. This community has been established. And so the gospel could now radiate out into new centers where the Spirit's mission was taking them. Now, some refer to the apostles' visit and the reception of the Holy Spirit as the Samaritan Pentecost. It's a major step in salvation history. The Spirit was, uh, as it were, indicated in a visible manifestation was God's divine approval of this new missionary step outside of Jerusalem. This was something very big for the Jews. And so God marked it with the apostles present by the outpouring of the Spirit to confirm the Samaritans being part of this God's great plan and the growing expansion of the church. In essence, Peter and John's participation was a stamp of approval from the mother church of the Samaritan mission. It was endorsed, it was received, it was enthusiastically participated by the whole church. Now we'll read later on in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46, when the gospel moved even further to the Gentiles with Cornelius and his family, there was yet another marked reception of the Holy Spirit. So basically the Jews had their Pentecost moment, the Samaritans here had their Pentecost moment, and we will see how the inception of the Gentiles in Acts 10, they also have a Pentecost moment. The third word I'd like to look at is poison. Finally comes the exposure of the false ministry of Simon. In verse 18 and 19, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power that any one of you whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now Simon thought that God's power could be bought with money. 
This shows how blind and how ignorant and how callous his heart was. How little did he realize and know the power of grace. Notice how Peter exposes it in verse 20. Peter said to him, your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now in our translation, it's pretty mild. To be literal, Peter is actually saying in the Greek, he says, to hell with you and your money. Now, it's a terrible thing that this man had suggested that God's power could be bought with money, essentially saying God could be bought. Peter tells him very plainly, you and your money are both going to hell if you don't change your attitude. And then he points out to the root of the problem. And in verse 21, it says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter says to Simon, your heart is not right, Simon. You see, Simon seems to have believed in an intellectual way, but his heart seemed to be unchanged. Peter admonishes him and says, repent or change your mind, therefore, of this wickedness of your heart and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. You see, God reads the hearts, not just listens to words. Then in verse 24, Simon replies and says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, it's interesting to know that Simon refuses to act personally, but actually puts the responsibility on someone else while desiring to escape the penalty. He wanted Peter to pray for him instead of him praying and repenting. He seemed more concerned about the impending judgment than getting his heart right with God. Now, there's no record of him actually repenting, and historians have long debated, was Simon's salvation experience genuine, or did he just verbalize a commitment and follow through with baptism in order to identify with the others so that he could secure fame and power within the community? Now, some point of three of Peter's statements to contend that Simon was not really saved. Peter said in verse 20, your money perish with you. In verse 21, it says, you have neither part nor lot or fellowship in this word. And third, in verse 23, indicate that Simon was in the bond of iniquity. Now, we don't know what happened to Simon. and It's not recorded in Scripture. And we don't know if he genuinely repented or not. But he seems he did not acknowledge the truth. And truth has power. As Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, there's a story about a king who had no sons or daughters or no queen. And so he decided he needed an heir to the throne and before he dies. And as he was getting older in age, he decided that he would give all the children in the kingdom a seed, a single seed. And whichever child came with the most largest and most beautiful plant would earn the throne. And so then he gave all the children seeds. And after a few months, the children came back with their pots. And some of them had these beautiful flowers and beautiful plants that grew. And suddenly he was looking at all of these children's pots. And finally, he saw a little girl that brought an empty pot. And he looked at that girl with the empty pot and said, you will be the next queen. Everyone was surprised and shocked. Why did he choose this girl with an empty pot when everyone had these beautiful flowers and plants in their own pots? And people were wondering, why did, he, why did the king choose this little girl? And he said, and the king said, because I gave every one of you fake seeds. And this little girl was the only honest child who didn't switch the seeds. You see, there's something to be said about truth. There are many false claims, but truth always emerges. Truth always wins. 
Now, church tradition says Simon went off the deep end and became a very dangerous and false teacher among the early Christians. Simon is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, but second century Christian writer Justin Martyr, who himself was a Samaritan, represents Simon as, an empower, as empowered by demons to perform magic and later honored by Rome as a god. Irenaeus, another early church father, describes him as the founder of the sect of Simonians who uh, was part of forming all sorts of Gnostic heresies derived from their origin. So I guess we'll only find out in eternity what happened to Simon. However, there's a pattern or a theme that would be helpful for us to spend a few moments digging into this morning. I'd like us to uh, focus. You see, whenever God wanted to do something very significant, the enemy often works from without externally and within internally in the church or in the community to disrupt, distort, and damage the purposes of God. So I'd like to look at a very interesting pattern that has developed over uh, a, the past few years you look in the, in, in the Gospels, in the Scriptures. In this chapter, in this story, we see the enemy working through Simon with his desire to exchange money for power. We looked at a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 5, we read about how the church was rapidly growing and then Ananias and Sapphira died because they lied and deceived and withheld money from the sale of a land. And then remember at the end of the Gospels during Jesus' ministry, the enemy worked through Judas to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, can you identify a common theme within these three stories? Yes, it's money. In, Acts, in, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 to 10, it says, The people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, money is not evil. The love of money is not the root of evil. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, the love of money produces different types of evil behavior, sorrows, and pain. The love of money promises us certain things. For Judas, it promised protection. He feared Jesus was going to cause some kind of revolt against the Romans and the Jewish leaders, so he looked for uh, protection. He was trying to curry favor with them by selling Jesus so that he would be protected. Ananias and Sapphira, uh, money promised them position and prestige. They were looking to look good before the other disciples in the community, and yet it kept them from being honest. And Simon the magician, it promised him power. If only he could buy the ability to pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit, he would have power. You see, the love of money tries to think that we can have protection and position and prestige and power through the amassing of more and more wealth. Psalm 49, 6-10 says, They trust in their wealth and they boast of their great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death. By paying a ransom to God, redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. And those who are wise must finally die but like the foolish and senseless, leaving all their wealth behind. You see, Jesus came to change the perception of the Eastern thought patterns regarding money. The thought pattern was they equated wealth with spiritual blessing and salvation. Basically, if you were rich, you were blessed, God loved you, and you were saved. Remember Jesus shared the story in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, about a rich man who had a vast amount of wealth. 
and a poor man named Lazarus who was begging for food on the roadside. And both men died, but the rich man went to a place of torment, hell, and the poor man went into a place of blessing and comfort and hope. Now, this puzzled the Jewish people. They challenged their pre-existing mindset. How could a rich man go to hell? Wasn't their wealth and success a sign of God's blessing? I want to ask you, do you have a similar mindset? Do you equate God's favor and blessing based on your riches, your wealth, and material possessions? Do we think that we are successful and we have a lot of money because of that, that means God is happy with our lives? Or do we think because we lost our job and we're struggling financially that God is unhappy with us? You see, Jesus came to reorient that view of money and wealth. Do you know that Jesus talked more about money than about heaven and hell combined? 11 out of the 39 parables, he taught about finances. You see, the love of money, if we're not careful, has the ability to disrupt plans, plans that God has for us. As Paul was writing Timothy, that some have wandered from the true faith. It can disrupt their plans. It can distort perception, our perception and view of God. And it can also damage people. Paul writes about how some people have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it can disrupt plans, distort perception, and damage people. So we have to be really careful with this poison of the love of money. Today, I'd like us to check our hearts to see if the enemy is using the love of money to disrupt, to distrust, distort, or damage God's work in us and God's work through us. You see, the love of money can cause us selfishness and a greed, can cause us to pursue materialism, can cause us to overwork and try to think we can make more and more money, trying to secure a protection and power and prestige in our lives. But God works through our hearts with the attitude of giving with our money to deal with certain areas of our heart. The first is to deal with selfishness. You see, the Lord is concerned with our heart. God does not bless giving. Rather, he blesses giving out of a right attitude. You see, it's true that when we give, we receive. However, that should not be the motivation for giving. We must deal with our selfishness in our hearts. Why did God create giving? Most people think it's to support God's work. While it's partially true, God really instituted the spiritual disciplines of giving to get selfishness out of our hearts. It's not giving to get because that brings selfishness back into our hearts. The second is to deal with a grieving heart. Now, we shouldn't give and then grieve over that decision. Like, I gave this to God, but oh, I, I, wish, I, I wish I had more. Selfishness attacks us before we even give and grief attacks us after we give. Hear that again. Selfishness attacks us before we give and grief attacks us after we give. If we realize simply that we are stewards of everything that God has given to us, which ultimately belongs to him, then we'll have the right perspective to give without grieving. The third thing that God does is to develop a generous heart. God said he wants us to not just give, but to be generous. We are all born naturally selfish. Every one of us, you and me, and it's no doubt, if you doubt it, just go look at our kids and see how they fight over a toy. But when we're born again, we are born again generous. However, our old tendencies, our old nature start to come back and, and fight against this new nature that God is forming in us. And some of us still exhibit that similar tendencies as our little kids fighting over money as if it was ours. God wants us to be generous like he is generous. And remember, God demonstrated his extravagant love and generosity by giving us his best 
his son Jesus. And finally, to develop a grateful heart. If we allow God to remind us now and then that we were once slaves bound by the bondage of sin and death and that everything we have is because of His grace, it'll help us to develop a grateful heart. All we have is the Lord's and we can be generous when we're grateful, with a grateful heart. I love part of this prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, 13 to 14. It says, O our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you and we give you only what you have given us first. You know, this portion of scripture has meant a lot to me because there was a time in my life uh, when I was making serious transitions in my life. For seven months, I was homeless. I had nothing. Now, I was not homeless in the sense of living on the street, but I had no permanent place. And it was the kindness and generosity of friends and family that had me in their homes and their place actually over the course of... Uh, five different countries and many cities over those seven months that I was able to stay. And there was a time when I was exploring a certain job, a specific opportunity, and I didn't have a car and transportation to that place was a little bit more challenging and difficult that a kind older Romanian couple who lived uh, during the time of the uh, oppression, lived in Romania during the time of Nicolae Ceausescu during um, that oppressive time and regime, uh, they opened their home to me so that I could explore this job opportunity. And we shared wonderful times of hospitality and good food and, and, and wonderful times of prayer and joy. And in their kindness, God uh, put in their hearts to financially give so that I could get a car. And they generously gave money that I was able to buy a brand new Honda Civic. And I was able to also get that job and change the trajectory of my life because of the kindness and generosity of that couple. And in my life, I've graciously, graciously witnessed and experienced God's love through the generosity of others. And at points in my life, I've lived without nothing. And so now I know that without a shadow of doubt, anything that I have is because of what God has given. And from that knowledge, I know that nothing is, is mine. It's all from the Lord. And because of that, I can freely give as I have freely received of the Lord. And so this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that everything that you have is from God? Do you believe that everything that you own is from the Lord that you can freely give? And because of the kindness and generosity of others, I, I know that what I have is not mine. Because at a point in my life, I had nothing. And so everything that I have is the Lord's. And this is where God wants us to live. And what we give of our lives and finances is only what we have of Him first. And this, so, this is where the concept of giving and tithing originates. God has designated a part of all what He has given us so that we give back to Him. First, it's an act of honor and respect for God, for what He's given. Second, it's an act of trust and faith that God is our provider. And because our finances uh, sometimes give us a false sense of security and safety, God wants us to trust Him. Third, it's to deal with the selfishness as we looked in our hearts. And fourth, is for the furtherance of the kingdom of God, for the growth of His church. When we realize that our money belongs to God, it's not a struggle to give anymore. The problem is that we think it's ours. So let's be mindful for this poison that was working in, in Simon and Ananias and Sapphira and Judas that provided a false sense of protection and position and power that often can disrupt plans, distort perception, and damage people. And so consider this morning, how can we be generous? How can we give 
our finances and our tithing and how can we give to others in need, the poor and the needy. Consider that prayerfully this morning. And finally, let's look at the last word is proclamation. In verse 25 in Acts 8, it says, and they have further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You read how the apostles went about proclaiming the gospel to new places and new people. What new places is God calling us to share the gospel that we might never have? It's maybe to an unsaved family member, an unsaved spouse. It's at our school, a co-worker at our job, or someone in our community. Who is God calling? Maybe someone's God calling to a new country. There may be people you may feel uncomfortable to talk to or reach out to, but sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead us to unexpected people in unexpected circumstances and unexpected places. Will you be open to it? Maybe it's on the bus or the go train or in the shopping mall or in a restaurant. In the book of Acts, now, do you notice the first four people that Luke writes about who encountered the gospel that went out from Jerusalem? The first in Acts 8 was Simon the magician, a sorcerer, a wizard, someone who was involved in occultic divination and, and with demons. Second, we'll, in the next, next week, we're going to look at the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 9, we read about a religious terrorist in Saul. And in Acts 10, we're going to read about a Roman centurion named Cornelius. How's that for the first four recorded people in the book of Acts? You got a guy with astrology cards in his hands involved in demonic sorcery, a guy who's castrated and renounced his sexuality, a terrorist killing people for their faith, and an oppressor, uh, the Roman centurion. It's interesting to see who the biblical writers choose to highlight. And so God is challenging us to reach people we would not normally talk to or converse or have fellowship with. You see, Jesus didn't come for the righteous, but for the sick, the broken, the hurting. And it says he was a friend of sinners. Do you have any friends who are not Christians? And are you living out the gospel for them? In Matthew 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I want to ask you, has God's story become your story? And has your story of his great salvation in your life been shared to others, to the nations. I'd like to share this little demonstration here. I have a can of Coke and uh, this brand Coca-Cola and I'm just going to try to see if I can make this disappear. Just joking. But here's this nice, delicious, unhealthy drink of Coca-Cola. And you can see this, this, this can of Coke do you know that 91% of the world's population has heard about Coke? 74% have seen a bottle or a can of Coca-Cola. 51% have tasted it. But 60% of the world's population have only heard about the gospel. 60%. 40% haven't. There are more people in the world who have, who know and heard about Coca-Cola than about Jesus. In the world today, 30% of people are Christians, but there are about 69% of people who don't follow him. Just think about it. So I want to encourage you, the next time you see a can or a bottle of Coke, just remember this. More people know about this than about Jesus. And so would you consider every time you see a bottle of Coke to say, who can I share Jesus with? So you take a moment and think of someone you know 
someone you love who needs to know the good news. God is offering us to partner with him to bring the gospel to all the nations. You see, in the GTA where, where we're living, God has brought all the nations to us. God has given us something called life. And we can do whatever we want with our lives. We can make it about us and live for ourselves and buy this and live like this. Or we can use our lives to proclaim the gospel. The choice is up to us. God in his grace has here in this chapter in chapter 8 built a bridge between two estranged peoples and made the believers one, made the believers one in Christ so that he would extend the next bridge to the Gentiles to include them as well. And even today, God is looking for bridge builders, people like Philip, men and women who will carry the gospel in, and pioneer into new territory and who would dare to challenge ancient prejudice. Into all the world, the gospel will go to every creature. And that's still God's commission. That's still God's calling. That's still God's purpose for you and for me, for us as a church, as sanctus. So from persecution to proclamation, God will take us very often out of our comfort zone, take us into new territory, new places. We just need to watch out for that poison that may try to disrupt and damage or destroy us. So I'd like to close the, the sermon this morning with a few challenges for us. First, will you consider sharing the gospel with someone you've never talked to before? Consider that. Someone you never talked to, someone you may be actually averse to, would you go and talk to them about Jesus? Second, would you consider being generous to a random stranger this week? I want to challenge all of us. This week, go and buy someone a coffee. Maybe you're standing at Tim's and just buy someone a coffee or a meal or just give someone a gift card. Let that nature of selfishness be broken by the power of generosity, by the power of the Spirit invoking in us a desire to give more than receive. Just do an act of kindness, a random act of kindness, an act of generosity to someone this week, specifically to someone you don't even know. Third, please take a moment to examine our hearts and our priorities and how we utilize money in our lives. How is our giving? How is our tithing? Are we actually giving, realizing that what we have is from the Lord and we give back to Him? And finally, God is inviting us to be bridge builders. Will you accept His call to be a bridge builder with new communities, with new people, through the power of the Spirit? I'd like to close with this story and I hope it inspires and encourages all of us. There was a, a man named Edward Kimball. And he was determined to win his Sunday school class to Christ. And there was a teenager named Dwight Moody who tended to fall asleep on Sundays. And, but Kimball was undeterred. He set to reach out to him at his workplace. And so with his heart pounding, he entered the store where this young man worked and he put his hand on his shoulder and he leaned over and placed his foot on a shoebox and he asked him to come to Christ. But Kimball left thinking that he botched the job. Moody, however, left that store that day a new person and eventually became one of the most prominent evangelists in America. On June 17, 1873, Moody arrived in Liverpool, England for a series of crusades. And the meetings poorly, uh, started poorly at first. But then the dam burst and the blessings flowed. And Moody visited a Baptist chapel pastored by a scholarly man named F.B. Meyer, who at first disdained the Americans' unfettered, unfettered preaching. And, but Meyer was soon transfixed and transformed by Moody's message. And at Moody's invitation, Meyer toured America. And at Northfield Bible Conference, he challenged the crowd saying, if you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? 
The remark changed the life of a struggling young minister named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman proceeded to become a powerful traveling evangelist in the early 1900s. And then he recruited a converted baseball player named Billy Sunday. And under Chapman's eye, Sunday became one of the most spectacular evangelists in American history. His campaigns in Charlotte, North Carolina produced groups of converts who continued praying for another such visitation of the Spirit. And in 1934, they invited the evangelist Mordecai Ham to conduct a citywide crusade. And October 8th, Ham, discouraged, wrote a prayer to God on a stationery in his Charlotte hotel, and it said this, Lord, give us Pentecost here. Pour out thy spirit tomorrow. And his prayer was answered because his dreams, beyond his dreams, his prayer was answered beyond his dreams when a central high school student named Billy Graham gave his heart to Jesus. And Edward Kimball thought he botched the job. This morning, will you consider being a bridge builder? To go to new territory, new places, to new people, or even continue to invest in people in your circle? You see, Edward Kimball invested into his Sunday school class, into that one student that eventually transformed many people to even Billy Graham, who spoke the gospel to thousands and tens of thousands of people over the course of his life, all because of a Sunday school teacher who was willing to reach out to a student. And you and I have the power just to one person who can transform a family, a generation of people because of one person's investment. I encourage you to invest into that, to think about what God wants to do in the proclamation of the gospel, but at the same time to be careful that the poison doesn't come to take our hearts and disrupt, distort, and damage God's purpose in our lives. Would you join with me in praying and with this prayer on the screen, if you would recite the prayer together with me as we close this morning. Lord our God, help us to walk with you on the pathway to be like you, to live out our mission in today's world. Bind us to all men and women of our time so that together we may bring the good news to the ends of the earth. Open our hearts and our communities to the needy, the afflicted, the oppressed, May we radiate the living Christ and transform our lives in the hope of the resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. God bless your week, and we'll see you next time.